Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Ocean Matters. I'm Izzy Clark, the producer of this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, and these bonus episodes are a chance for us to revisit topics and explore extra content from the main episodes. We explored the formation of oceanic islands in episode 6. But did you know that the very first series to explain this process came from Charles Darwin and his time on HMS Beagle? The voyage from 1831 to 1836 set out to create new maritime maps of the coastlines of South America and travelled across the Pacific and then to the Indian Ocean. At the age of 22, Darwin joined the vessel as a naturalist, but it was Captain Robert Fitzroy and his crew who were tasked with researching the formation of coral reefs. I spoke with Alistair Sponsel, historian of the life sciences at Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory and research fellow in science, technology and society at Harvard University. He explained where the crew's research began. One of the big questions that concerned many scientists of the day was the question of how coral islands, particularly coral atolls, were formed. These are ring-shaped reefs of coral that surround a lagoon in some of the remotest parts of the Pacific and Indian Oceans. And so the idea was that Fitzroy himself should survey some coral reefs when they visited them. He was obviously, as you said, interested in this question of why. Why are coral reefs in these remote places? Why are they where they are? But I gather that another question that he was interested in is why are atolls in a ring shape as well. What can you tell me about his work on that? This was seen as truly mysterious by <laughs> by naturalists and by navigators as well, that these reefs should form in otherwise featureless landscapes of the ocean where you might think you could safely make sail. And they didn't rise up any higher than sand that could be thrown up on top of a reef. And they were difficult to see and yet they formed these truly deadly structures if, if a ship ran aground on a remote atoll. And they had this bewitching shape as well, the encircling reef and then this calm, often very colorful lagoon. And the prevailing theory was that this shape was a property of some underlying foundation, that a submarine volcano crater might underlie every single atoll. And Darwin, in a letter that he wrote home to one of his sisters during the Beagle voyage, described that as, he said, a monstrous hypothesis. <laughs> he, th- he thought it was inconceivable that there would be submarine volcano craters, some of them 20 or 30 miles in diameter, sitting just beneath the surface of the ocean where corals, which uh, he believed not to be able to grow in very deep water. So somehow shallow water organisms were living in the middle of the deepest parts of the ocean and forming these enchanting structures. So how do they go about answering those big, big questions? Well, the everyday work of a hydrographic surveyor like Captain Fitzroy was to sail slowly along the coastline in question. and Sounds quite nice, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's, apparently it was it was real drudgery for the poor people who were involved in casting out what was called the sounding lead and then hauling the line back in, depending quite how deep the water was. But the the everyday work involved 
measuring depth by dropping a literally a, a big piece of lead and finding the depth and then plotting the contours of the coast and the depths onto a map. And an interesting feature of that work, something that turned out to be very significant for young Darwin on the Beagle, was that the Saudi lead was concave at the bottom and the surveyors would pack the base of the Saudi lead with animal fat, with tallow, so that it would take an impression of the seafloor and if if there were loose sand or anything else, uh, actually bring back up a specimen, a sample from the bottom of the seafloor. So for Darwin, who was really enthusiastic about marine zoology and marine botany, going back to his earliest university days in Edinburgh, this was an incredible new source of scientific entertainment and serious study while he was otherwise stuck on board the ship. And so he began to pay really close attention first to the types of things that came up on the base of a sounding lid. And those could be really from across the scientific spectrum, animal, vegetable, and mineral. And he was intrigued by how, how say, the types of organisms and the types of rocks on the floor of the sea might coincide. But also, of course, the specimens came connected to geographical information because the surveyors were plotting this in in all three dimensions. And so for Darwin, it spurred him, I would argue, to think in what we might later have thought of and would later be called an ecological point of view, to look at the relations between animals, plants, and inorganic things as found in situ and as related across space and in, in altitude or depth. So he's really building up as much information as possible, you know, taking these imprints of whatever's lurking beneath the waves with this lead and animal fat, as well as mapping out coastlines with the crew that's on the HMS Beagle. So how does that all come together with understanding coral reefs and atolls? What was that turning point? The first several years of the voyage were in South America, And while he was there, he came up with the idea that the whole continent of South America had been elevated. And he thought that there must be some sinking going on elsewhere to compensate for the elevation of this young continent of South America. And there's a very interesting experience that he documented in his notes from Tahiti in November of 1835, where he climbed up to an altitude of two or 3,000 feet on the, the mountainous island of Tahiti and looked across the barrier reef, the coral reef that encircles Tahiti, across to another island now known as Morea, which also is mountainous and encircled by a barrier reef, and had the idea that if indeed the floor of the Pacific sank slowly enough that the coral reefs surrounding islands like Tahiti and Morea could continue to grow and keep pace, then eventually the, the, the island itself, the, the mountainous, formerly volcanic island, would disappear, and all that would be left was a former barrier reef now turned into something indistinguishable from, indeed, something that would therefore be called an atoll, a ring-shaped coral reef surrounding an empty lagoon. And so we have this really significant moment And then he also gets on to visit the Indian Ocean as well, where 
he then gets to study these reefs up close. What were the observations that he was making and where did that fit into his ideas that he was starting to build at this time? As Darwin walked across the Cocos Keeling Islands, which is a pair of atolls in, in the Indian Ocean, at the southern atoll, South Keeling Atoll, he made collections of, of the plants that were growing there and picked up various kinds of corals. But he did it with a system. He started at the innermost part of these islets by the lagoon and looked at the types of corals that seemed to grow in the lagoon and the sand there and sediments. And then he would make his way up and across these low sandy islands, eventually out to the outer edge of the atoll and across the reef flat. And he collected different corals and he remarked on the degree to which they might be fossilized or still seem to be recently alive. And he was very intrigued to try to understand which types of corals form which parts of the reef and to understand the entire process by which living organisms could result in an island capable of human habitation. And I, I love this because there is a brilliant online archive of Darwin's notes and, and I'm looking at it here actually and we will link this in the episode notes. It sketches out a section of this island and there's this note that says, beginning with the lagoon, the shores are formed of fine calcareous sand with a few fragments of coral, which more frequently is of the delicate branched kind. So he was really tracking out every step, looking at everything he found along the way, you know, literally no stone left unturned, but it seems. <laughs> that was a really exciting finding for him because previous naturalists had written that the same types of corals grow in lagoons and on the outer face of the reef. And at South Keeling, Darwin thought he'd made a really important scientific discovery. Indeed, <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> <He did. laughs> it would bear up. Um, but he was convinced that the types of corals that could flourish in the quiet and rather sediment-rich waters of the lagoon were different from the ones that really built the robust structure of the reef on the outer face. Those corals had to be able to withstand the power of the unbroken waves of the Indian Ocean. And Darwin quite extraordinarily writes about using a pole vaulting pole, he called it a leaping pole, to help him support himself as he made his way all the way out to the very outer part of the reef where the waves were breaking and he stood on these great eight-foot humps of living coral and tried to peer down and see whether it was indeed the case that the more robust species that grew and built the reef on the outer face were different from the ones, those delicate branching ones that survived in the lagoon. And so how important was that differentiation for the time? Well, certainly among people who did not live on coral reefs, naturalists like Darwin who were visiting, this was novel. And I think it's important to see that it's really in keeping with a broader theme that, that made Darwin's work distinctive and important, which was, again, thinking about the geographical relation as well as relation across time, say between fossil and living things, as well as these geographical relations between different types of things across a landscape or say across the terrain of a coral reef. And so this was just another illustration of 
how much benefit Darwin got from what we might think of as as geographical thinking. And and so I go back again to the value of the fact that Darwin was traveling around the world with a set of essentially uh, professional map makers, Captain Fitzroy and the fellow officers of the Beagle. So he's been building up all of this work from, you know, this five-year voyage on HMS Beagle. So what was his theory on coral reef formation? Darwin's theory of coral reef formation was that shallow water organisms, reef-building corals, could form ring-shaped reefs in the middle of the ocean if they had originally grown up in the shallow waters around an oceanic island like Tahiti. And if the island itself sank very slowly while the coral reef was able to continue growing and keeping pace at sea level, then eventually what had been a reef-fringed island would become an island with a more distant barrier reef encircling it. And finally, that shrinking central island would disappear altogether, and what would be left was an empty lagoon surrounded by a ring-shaped coral reef that would be called an atoll. So Darwin was very proud of this theory because at once it explained all the different types of reefs he knew to exist on Earth, and even more importantly from his perspective, to connect it to really big geological questions like where a continent such as South America had come from. He had this grand theory of vertical oscillations or movements of the Earth's crust. This was before the idea of plate tectonics, but it helped to, in Darwin's view, explain some of the same kinds of questions that the plate tectonic theory answers today. But for Darwin, it was more about up and down movements of big sections of the Earth's crust rather than side-to-side movements that we think of with plate tectonics. We know that Darwin's theory of evolution was dismissed by lots of people at the time. So how were his theories on island formation taken? When Darwin got back from the Beagle Voyage, still as a pretty young man, one of the first really celebrated parts of his work was his theory of coral reef formation, as well as more broadly his his work in geology. Darwin's first specialized scientific book published in 1842, was called The Structure and Distribution of Coral Reefs. And he followed that up with another book on the formation of volcanic islands. He really came to be well-known as a geologist, and particularly for his work on, on the formation of coral islands and volcanic islands. And when he finally published that book on coral reefs in 1842, people thought it was an incredibly elegant and clever theory. But at the same time, he was also in private developing a series of different evolutionary theories. It took Darwin a very long time before he finally decided to publish his evolutionary theory. It was about 20 years from when he first came up with the idea of natural selection until he published On the Origin of Species in 1859. And so how has his theory on coral reefs influenced research today and what do you think he would make of the threats today to reefs and to islands due to climate change? This is something I'm really interested in my broader work as a historian of science. There's been an extraordinary shift in the kinds of motivations scientists have for understanding the growth of coral reefs. Just as Darwin might have struggled to think of some great land animals as (laughs) potentially becoming threatened by human activities. I think he would have found it very difficult to imagine that humans could change the environment on a scale 
to threaten what he saw as this inexorable, ages-long process of corals continually growing on their deceased ancestors and building a reef. Darwin's coral reef theory itself has been really influential in coral reef science. It's the, the idea that atolls exist on top of a very, very thick foundation of shallow water corals is pretty well established. But on the, the deeper scale that Darwin was contemplating, trying to answer the question, how could these robust structures that you could run a ship aground on or, or live on be formed by shallow water animals that live in the deepest parts of the ocean? In terms of the, the deeper scale, the larger scale, Darwin's idea that subsidence of the foundation along with many thousands of vertical feet of accumulation of coral rock has borne the test of time. Alistair Sponsel, thank you very much. And if you want to find out more about Darwin, Alistair has written a book about his life called Darwin's Evolving Identity, Adventure, Ambition and the Sin of Speculation. That's it for this bonus episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Ocean Matters so you're the first to know when the next episode is out. And speaking of which, next time it's all about sharks, why they're not necessarily like the portrayal we get from Hollywood and why we need to protect them. I'm Izzy Clark and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation.